始め of history as Nietzsche sees it and I think myself as well is to build yourself up to give rise to strong and vital life and in his eyes there are three types of life or history one is the critical history this way you go back in time and you critique history with the aim of expunging it or destroying it so that way you can make yourself room for the future there is idolizing history and idolizing history is the conservative history is to give value to those things which are old and uh, effectively it's a traditionalist perspective but it gives rise well it doesn't give rise but it gives continuance to what is previously established and then there is heroic history heroic history centers on the idea of individuals especially great men Think of yourselves. Think of, think to yourselves, for instance, of writers like Thomas Carlyle. Now, the emphasis, the emphasis on great men and great odds and great victories, is to inspire you to challenge great odds and commit great deeds. Now, what do I mean from that? I Every time I pick up a history book when I was a kid, and I'm sure you have too, and being in the military profession, one has to read a lot of history. In fact, that is the main modicum of learning uh, warfare and political experience, simply because of the fact that, by and large, war changes so often that the more it changes, the more it stays the same. And so you can see a lot of the rhymes and the tacts that leaders and politicians take in times past but you know it's something that it's hard to explain to people that history is not a boring set of events legionaries you understand it's not that monotone cuck you know freaking pencil neck nerd telling you about the minutia of this and that. There is some utility to that kind of history, but by and large, not really. Knowing the exact factoids and little numeroids and all this kind of stuff, it's it's beyond the point. In fact, it's a kind of autism. The truth of history, how it should read, how it should be told to you, it should read like you ripped a line of cocaine and you're about to take an enemy settlement or village or something like that. It should read like you took freaking meth and you're in the Wehrmacht 
in the middle of the Russian tundra, riding on the back of a panzer tank. You can feel the tracks rolling and the, the rounds coming in from artillery shells and the and the zing of the machine guns going past your head and your buddies next to you and your heart racing and the adrenaline going. And you're about to launch off and you're about to assault in a position and you see the enemy and you bayonet charge him. That's what history should sound like. And frankly... There's not enough of that. Now, I wanted to go back, and one of the most probably important figures of late Western history, um, he was a man from a time removed from his own, who was able to salvage something so grotesque, so terrible, like, for instance, the French Revolution, the Slave Revolt of 1789. And he was able to transform that and sublimate that into something even better. To something that most haven't even dreamed of. A synthesis beyond syntheses. And it's important to understand all this stuff because we ourselves are in the doldrums of 1789. We are amongst the hoi polloi, the effeminate vagina-smelling, disgusting weakness of a decrepit empire of decrepit souls of the botched and the bungled, right? That's the revolution of the botched and the bungled. I love that term from Nietzsche. Now, it is important to step out all aside and show and see how one man is able to synthesize by his own experience and greatness and his boldness to take that around and become something else. Napoleon is one of the greatest military commanders ever to have existed. I think he even surpasses technically by uh, by some kind of metric some nerd put it together. He actually has the most uh, single victories as a general. And now, of course, technology varies and et cetera, et cetera, and so it's kind of unfair. But Next to Alexander the Great, who else inspires visions of greatness aside from Napoleon? From men between uh, the big H-man of World War II to, well, pretty much everyone you read historically has always admired and loved Napoleon. Napoleon, for his time, was also a boogeyman, but he was also something... That was more than himself. He was more than human. He was, in many ways, an ubermensch. And, by and large, actually, Nietzsche himself acknowledged him as such. But, how did he become that thing? Because before the French Revolution, he was just an artillery uh, cadet who wasn't able to advance within the sclerotic royalist system because he was obviously uh, a petty noble like a, a small nobility he wasn't um, rich or powerful enough or had a name enough in fact he was from a Corsican uh, Italian family so he wasn't even a French noble and so you know the revolution happens in 1789 and Louis XIV is beheaded and Marie Antoinette the same and there the directories imparted and all this kind of stuff happens and he's sent as a brigadier general to K 
campaign in northern Italy to take Austria and her possessions in that location, etc., etc. But that wasn't the formative experience for Napoleon. For Napoleon, the formative experience would go on and his little excursion into Egypt. However, before we get into that, I think it's important to set the scene. I think it's important to note, for instance, that the era of the Napoleonic people and history of Europe ultimately, let's say, came about as the inverse of a previous era of something that came and was monstrous and terrible in its different ways, right? So, obviously especially my American friends, my French friends, might have some different misconceptions about this time that I'm referring to, but I think it's important to recognize what actually happened. So, setting the scene here, 1776 is the first liberal revolution of any great consequence which gave rise to all the rest of the revolutions throughout Europe and the world. And at the time, of course, Europe was the palace of the world, which is, I guess, my term for where the nexus of all culture of a certain civilization is. Now, America, we all know the founders were Masons. Many don't know, but the Masonic Order is itself the lodge. It's the, the front group, the society, which promulgates a certain ideology. It toes that line. So... People don't know this, but revolutions are often orchestrated by secret societies, which is fundamentally how you create something of that caliber, of that that type. Now, it's important to note a couple different things that happened. Um, You know, the American Revolution happened, and the character of the American Revolution was a little bit of a flavor of what would happen during the Terror in the French Revolution, but a lot more tame. I mean, the worst thing we did was cover human beings in tar and feather them and scar them for life and then this and that and the other thing, which comparatively to what you're about to listen to um, is pretty tame. However, let's talk about the French Revolution, right? So here is the, the funny part about ideology, about how that affects things as they come along. I think it's important to note that, for instance, the liberal ideologies of the time by Robespierre, Rousseau, Voltaire, um, all these guys were almost the... hmm, How would you even explain it? It was the monarchy and the aristocrats who entertained and inculcated um, this culture of liberalism, of extreme egalitarianism, of um, humanism, right? Um, these things obviously have always had their ears and their hearts. Liberalism always appeals to the merchant class, and it especially appeals to the urban lumpenproles, the people, the botched and the bungled, as Nietzsche would say. And so, you know, Louis the Fourteenth and his predecessors, to their detriment, were 
patrons of the arts of this certain type of ideology, and, and they believe themselves to be enlightened monarchs, and they don't realize that the inherent contradiction of a monarch professing egalitarianism is itself a, a contradiction that doesn't last in front of the onslaught of a philosophical inertia. What do I mean? What I'm saying is um, you can't be king if what your ideas and and the, your raison d'etre and your reason of being is equality. Okay? That's the people that are making the argument from an egalitarian perspective to be more equal are always going to have the rhetorical edge over someone like that. Which is fundamentally why I think um, it's a mistake to try and re- rehabilitate ideologies or religions which promulgate a, a certain type of egalitarianism. But that's not a big deal. So, to give you reference, of course, you know, what the French Revolution was, was not simply a revolt against monarchy as such, or the coming of egalitarianism. It was fundamentally an idea, uh, it's a slave revolt. You know, it's, uh, daddy hates taxes, hates, hates, a, you know, order, hates this and that, and, you know, people were starving because they were breeding like bunnies, and then basically it fomented unrest, and it's not just suffering that causes revolution, but agitation, and that is precisely what the philosophy does, is it agitated those people who were suffering, and who could think that there would be better times if they changed that. That's the catalyst of revolution. It's not just discontent. Discontent needs to be agitated and catalyzed. So, there's other concurrent theme that happened with revolution, um, with the classical liberal revolution, is the idea of rationalism. Rationalism, and I'm not going to get into much more detail. This is a military and you know political philosophy transmission it's not i'm not here to to lecture you about philosophy forever so let's get back here so there's this fixation of rationalism and rationalism is basically like the argument where you know uh things should be made more efficient um and that things should follow the a priori impetus of the world, which in the case of Marxist or early Marxist, proto-Marxist, is the egalitarian nature of man. The nature of man, right? Rousseau believed that man in the wild was fundamentally asocial and good, and that society made him evil. Isn't that funny? It's, it's always someone else's fault. Like That is the fundamental difference between a man and a slave is that you're the one the slave you always it's always on massa it's massa that did this and that and the other thing right but it's the master who takes fault and responsibility unto himself because he knows himself to be the agent and you should learn this in the military is that when a man under you and your command fails it's not his fault it's your fault for being a poor leader but i'm getting too sidetracked now both of these elements of rationalism and egalitarianism gave rise to some very interesting things that were kind of actually pretty cool. For instance, they had the revolutionary calendar, 
which the calendar uh, reformed the Julian or Gregorian calendar into like I think it was like weeks of 10 days so that way the year was perfectly split and ultimately what would happen is the year being perfectly split um, there wouldn't be February with 28 days and some day, uh, some months with 30 and then other months with 31 every month had a certain amount and it followed more closely with the solar calendar but another th- interesting thing is liberal nationalism the way to mobilize the average people to widen a person's rule and engage the vast majority of the populace that was an innovation because we we finally saw so the monarch the monarch wasn't able to penetrate all the way down to the deepest depths of society right he he i mean think about it if you're a peasant like aside from tradition and uh some sentimental perspectives you may have of shoulds, you know, finger wagging, you don't really feel emotionally driven to go out on a limb for him, right? But nationalism, what nationalism does is it encapsulates a philosophy which frames political acts as being in the interests of that, of an entire nation. It galvanizes them, right? Right? And so that's something that you have to think about, right? And uh, Nietzsche, he even talks about this, and I'll, I'll quote him now, just to talk about the French Revolution itself. Here's Nietzsche. I'm reading from Nietzsche now. The revolution made Nietzsche possible. That is the justification. For the sake of a similar prize, one would have to desire the anarchical collapse of our entire civilization. Napoleon made nationalism possible. That is his excuse. So, there are a lot of sentiments about what Napoleon would come to be, but it's important to say that just like there's a duality of opposites, everything, like for instance, every coin, everyone is a coin, and every coin has two sides. Without the terror of the French Revolution, there would be no Napoleon. But it's important to give background to it. Now, moving on, um... So what happened politically was that the French state under the directory after the terror ultimately was fighting for its survival. It was the only republic of its kind in continental Europe and even then uh, it was flimsy and not strong at its core. The United States was a fledgling nation, and to be frank with you, at that time, it was... It's like, you know, we think of the United States as the center of the world in a lot of ways today, but you have to remember, back then, it was a scantily populated country in the wilds, on the edges of the world, the periphery. It's basically like as if Taliban became, you know, the the harbinger of a new ideology, right? It, it, it's on the it's in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't matter. It has no reference to Europe, but that's different for France. France, you see, France was in the middle between wedged between not just Spain, which is an extremely conservative country, especially back then, but also Britain, which was also as well, and the what was the left of the Holy Roman Empire and Prussia. And, of course, you have the Holy Alliance that was uh, promulgated between 
the Romanovs in Russia and the Russian Empire, which was an extremely autocratic society, the Habsburgs, and finally the Prussians as well. And, I mean, you can't forget, of course, the Ottomans. And so, geopolitically, they were, they were on the ropes. And so what they had to do was expand their borders to provide strategic depth and defense of their country. This first started off in campaigns against Austria, for instance. And, by the way, not just were they trying to go for territory themselves, but they were also trying to expand their legitimacy to get peace treaties which recognize the existence of their state and the authorities of that state itself legitimizes, right? And uh, coincidentally, when the American Revolution happened and the success and the Paris Treaty of 1783 occurred, there's a reason why King George III was reticent about not appearing in a painting, which, which it, it's not just humiliating to lose but to have lost to an ideological threat. Already, the, the fires of revolution uh, from a uh, communist perspective were stoked in France, and everyone knew about it. Everyone was aware of the ramifications that may or may not happen. So, continuing on, um, already... France had to fight the war of the First Coalition, which is uh, the war to restore the king and, well, his successor, because he, the king and the queen consort were murdered by Robespierre, by being guillotined, etc., and a number of other clergymen, and uh, as well as, oh, oh, the unfortunate and heroic rebellion in the Vendée in France which is where a bunch of peasants and nobles revolted uh, in a bid to, first of all, rebel against the directorate and restore the monarchy and God. Because you have to remember, that's another thing about the rationalist perspective or philosophies, that they don't believe in God. Um, they are the first atheist fedora tippers, so that's the important thing. So now setting the scene... You already see what's happened, right? So we have basically a Bolshevik gov government which was expansive and revolutionary and subversive and that was waging offensive operations and campaigns against the established peoples of Europe. And so Austria, for instance, uh, was defeated in northern Italy and conceded you know, the kingdom of Italy to the French, and so on and so forth. And that is the the premise where Napoleon first cuts his teeth, he goes off and is known to be a great commander, um, and finally they're finding themselves in a situation where they have to expand the interests of the French Republic. This includes securing and interdicting rival powers' trade potential, and enriching themselves. Napoleon spoke to the directorate and part of the director committee on the possibility of invading Egypt. Now, why Egypt? You have to remember, Egypt and the, the Isthmus of Suez, which at the time there was no canal, um, was a vital portion of territory which combined from medieval times and before 
the Far East with the Far West. And a lot of people take that for granted um, because a lot of sea trade until the Suez Canal in the 1900s uh, was constructed had to go all the way down through the treacherous horn of Cape Horn in South Africa and then go back up again into either the Red Sea or the Indian Ocean to trade with this for the spices of the Maharajas and the principalities of India. Now, the idea with Napoleon was to do this, is to interdict, attack into uh, in Egypt, control the Isthmus, and already, even though there wasn't a canal, there was a system in which British soldiers who had a special trade license with the Ottoman Sultanate and the, the Mamluks who were in control of that province, what they would do is they would sail all the way up to the harbor of the, the Suez and they would unload their cargo. Uh, this was perfect route for anything that had high exotic or high value, small quality like jewelry, spices, things that could be transported in small quantities quickly and they would be loaded up on camels and then they would traverse the desert into Alexandria and then board a ship, uh, a merchantman, back to western markets. So as you can see already Egypt was playing a geopolitical strategic position in the Mediterranean and it's important to note that value, the revenue value, is itself one of the motives. However, you can't let yourself always see history through a, a communist's eyes, through a through a bug man's eyes, which is a materialist perspective. To think, oh no, like the reason why you went out and did something was for money and for this or that, the material motivation. Um, people like Napoleon, he wasn't really necessarily motivated by the wealth of something. He was motivated by the prestige and the glory of some, some great and grand expedition. In fact, many European colonial powers, they went out and conquered, not because the co uh, colonies were necessarily solvent, but because it was beautiful, because it was a calling to life. Like Hernan Cortez, what is more poetic than boarding on three ships going in the middle of nowhere and conquering a nation of millions with 300 men? Isn't that insane? And so that's something akin to what Napoleon wanted to do. And before we talk about Egypt in particular, I really wanted to talk about the Ottoman Empire, that place of great majesty and beauty. Um that I, I think uh, a lot of us lose because of our antipathy towards the Turks. So just one second here, stand by. The Ottoman Empire was, within itself, a blessing and a curse. And when I say that, I mean like a blessing in a Nietzschean sense. A force, not just military force, a, a cultural force, which placed Europe on the back heel for a good 200 years. And, of course, it's important to note that people think about um, blessings and curses from the perspective of a Christian or a slave, that, um, you know, oh, peace is good, pain is bad, suffering is bad, unless it's to the 
benefit of whatever. But no, you should welcome pain. You should welcome challenges. Without challenge and adversaries and worthy adversaries, where would we be? And so that was the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire originated from the Seljuk Turks who had invaded into Anatolia and defeated the Byzantine Empire and established a myriad of different kinglets. In fact, I think... So when the First Crusade happened, they weren't necessarily fighting Arabs, uh, although the rank and file, of course, of soldiers were Arabs. The ruling aristocracy, the caste, the people that were behind the scenes... Uh, guiding things or at the head of armies were Turks and which by the way leadership makes all the difference it's the leadership that you judge a nation not the average man not the stock because the stock is just a bunch of cows you have to prod you can poke and prod with them wherever whichever way you want but the way you orchestrate them that is the character of a people that is the character of a of a thing that's what nietzsche would say is so anyway long story short a quick history of the ottoman empire is that it it was an ottoman ottoman which is like a duke duchy in anatolia that under i think it was Mehmet the first, the great, that conquered Constantinople, um, and ultimately was a pioneer of a new standing army model, where previously feudal feudal systems of levying troops, which hinged on ties of nobility between superiors and inferiors, and their clientele system to raise men and arms and and uh, you know, funds, that was all kind of stripped away to the point where power and authority were hyper-centralized, and what was a standing army, so for instance, when Mehmet I took Constantinople, the majority of his army was an army of slave soldiers, which is an interesting concept in the way that it's a standing army one of the few standing armies of the early modern period. And the way... And these guys were called janissaries, right? And janissaries were an institution in which um, you would buy boys that were young, and as you went through your life, they were taught, like, brought up almost as, like, a knight in the West was. So they were taught under a more senior officer uh, with their peers and they would study to read and write to do arithmetic basically to ride a horse to fire an arrow from horseback to fire an arrow obviously standing fighting sword lance um, with buckler and shield and all that kind of good stuff Um, in addition to basics of logistics and military campaigning and philosophy and obviously Islam now there are some pretty terrible parts of this, especially early, early Janissaries, they were castrated at youth, so as to obviously not mix with um, the local Turkish population, but as time went on, that institution fell away. Um, in addition to that, I think it's important to note that when the Ottomans mean slave, the institution of slavery is different in the Middle East as it is in the West. In the West, it's chattel slavery, which is a lot more brutal 
and exacting, and it's almost like treating someone like a total cog. And the way that the Ottomans treated slaves was a little bit different, culturally speaking. You know, for instance, a household slave, um, after a certain amount of faithful service or outstanding service, could win his freedom, and ultimately was the friend of that family. Um, and, and, and by Islamic law, when a slave was freed, he had to be given the stipend by his old master. Or, for instance, um, if a slave woman marries, she's also supposed to be given a dowry from her landlord, whatever the fuck you call her, the master. But also, if she marries the master, she is free of any stigma of having ever been a slave. Because... I guess the, the the institution is different and the meaning of slavery is different, but in a, a lot a lot of ways it's like serfdom, if that makes sense. You were familiarly familiar with people, but it wasn't it wasn't quite freedom. It wasn't family. There was a clear distinction of rank and authority, which in a, many ways is kind of healthy, actually. Um, but that system of the Ottoman Empire, and it expanded, expanded like crazy for, I think, uh, from the time it took of Constantinople, 1453, to 1688, where they suffered a massive and historic defeat at the gates of Vienna by a contingent of hussars, winged hussars from the Polish uh, Commonwealth and the Holy Roman Empire that was defending Vienna. Um... Which is actually interesting to note, because at this time, the French king had allied with the Ottomans, which was actually pretty crazy and pretty barbaric, if you ask me. But but that that's the thing, is it's such a great and, and, and massive event in the West, because it wasn't the West united against this common foe. It was enemies within Christendom who had betrayed Christendom at large, for petty political gain. And that's something you saw after 30, the Thirty Years' War was this concept of real politic and the Westphalian system as opposed to uh, the Christian system of St. Augustine, etc. The common defense. But forget about all that stuff. The Ottoman Empire was the big boogeyman. It was a militarized state of slaves all under the Ottoman prince, and the prince by himself, he was the daughter or, excuse me, he was the son of daughters of the harem and the harem are a bunch of slave women with whom the sultan would have children with and there's a lot of interesting stories that I won't go into, but the pattern of life of the Ottomans was completely different and the the cultural content of the Ottomans was also different because the Ottoman, Ottoman is not an ethnicity, it's like it's a obviously largely Turkish conception. However, even Ottoman Turkish had so many Persian loanwords and Arabic loanwords, and even the lettering of its of its previously unwritten language was in Sanskrit, which is Arabic, and then went on to be something else entirely and high, very highfalutin poetic, but. I'm not really here to get into that, but you have to imagine that this place was a, a m- place of massive wealth, of connections 
which had colonized into Indonesia, and in that time was a magnate of spices, and the majority of their wealth came from war. However, they had certain distinct disadvantages, which the West had a superior over to them, which is a penchant for a very weird... I don't know how you even call it. It's, uh... I, well, I guess just listen to this story. For instance, many Ottomans in the Turkish Empire believed that money was one thing that you could carry to heaven, and that ultimately one would hoard your coins, um, and a way of doing so would be to throw your coins into a river or the sea, and or a crack in the wall, because the idea would be that upon entering paradise, all the literal investments of your coinage into the earth will follow you and become at your disposal. Same thing with paper. Paper at the time was so valuable, but writing and reading were not. And, and I don't mean that they weren't valuable, but they weren't widespread enough to be utilized. So a lot of peasants from the Ottoman Empire, what they would do is they would gather every scrap of paper that the local magnate had discarded and they would also stuff it into cracks in the walls or into the the, the rivers etc with the same concept because it was its own wealth and there are a lot of interesting and funny like little tales about that but one of the most remarkable things about the Ottoman Empire was obviously it's very warlike culture but it's very high and uh, beautiful prose that it wrote and tulip gardens and its emphasis on um, war and poetry, which is a very aristocratic and conservative penchant that you can value in and of itself. But I think we're getting a little bit too carried away here. The main difference, and it became more and more exacerbated over time, was technological stagnation. At first, the Turks were so technologically advanced because they were the first um, to be employing early gunpowder weapons, especially, for instance, in the destruction of the Theodosian walls in Constantinople, they employed the largest, what was called a bombard, um, in history. And this thing is massive. You can see it. You should just Google it. Um, it's called the Grand Bombard, uh, Mehmet I. And these things are massive, lobbing, you know, I think it was like 50 stone stones. So I think it was like a 150-pound ball almost two miles. And that's an impressive feat because modern howitzers, by the way, have a range of roughly four or five miles. And so, I mean, for effective artillery purposes, but, I mean, obviously longer, I think it's like ten is at the max. However, that is a significant technological advantage that wasn't replicated or continued to innovate over time. They remained stagnant and rested on their laurels of technological achievements per se um, and you should see their homes so for instance the old Constantinople under the Byzantine Emperor was well kept um, there were street sweepers there was a uh, there were even early zoning laws and early organizations of quarters within the city but then when the Turks took over, all that went to the wayside. Rubbish was kept in the streets, and uh, dilapidated homes were built haphazardly everywhere. 
where there were no longer any straight roads from one place of the city to another. And uh, it's it's actually kind of cool because in the late 1800s, a lot of European visitors went to Istanbul and they would literally sketch some of these homes. And you should just Google, you know, late 1800s Istanbul. And I think that is probably the best way to encapsulate what the Ottoman Empire was. A place of great mysticism and wealth and superstition, but also stagnation and decline and scleroticism and the defeat at Vienna, which was their first major catastrophic defeat they had ever suffered, um, later became the harbinger of everlasting defeats. For instance, right after they went into conflict with Russia and Crimea and lost the Crimean Khaganate. And then later they went on to this and that and the other thing and they kept on losing. And Egypt, which is the subject of this transmission, they too lost Egypt to a certain extent. Um, The Barbary Coast and the Mamluks of the Mesopotamian region and Egypt had become their own entity who only paid lip service to the Sultan um, as opposed to actually any political cohesiveness. And so when Napoleon went to invade Egypt, his, his calculation would be this, that he would go and send a diplomatic mission to the Ottoman Sultan and in return, he, he, he was trying to spin it in a positive way and say, hey, let's take Egypt for you and reinstitute your authority there and then go on and uh, experience, how do you say, advantages of our own, right? So almost as if it were a positive thing. However, this obviously didn't work for reasons I will describe later in this transmission, but that was kind of the concept and that was the state of decline especially in the early 1800s of the Ottoman state the 1700s were a disaster and the 1800s were a a catastrophe and uh, I think it's important to just keep on going into that but to talk about the Mameluk state in Egypt a lot of the same thing and uh, Mameluk just simply means uh, slave soldier as I said before and slave soldier uh, in Arabic is Mamluk and there were its own institutions but the reason why it was called the Mamluk state is because the Janissary Corps or the um, Mamluk Corps were the only strata of civilization or, or society that was able to gather both power and competence together to rule and so at first these Mamluks would serve their masters faithfully but over time, they were ceded more and more power, and they were given positions such as prime minister, which to them was called the vizier. And slowly but surely, each of these provinces that were breakaway provinces became what is commonly known as military juntas, which is exactly what the Mamluks were. When Napoleon had set foot at Alexandria to conquer, he was fighting a local junta as opposed to any one coordinated um, you know uh, Ottoman official etc so without further ado let's talk about the invasion of itself proper and I don't want to fill your ear with a whole bunch of boring stuff so I think the most interesting parts of 
the Napoleonic incursion happened not necessarily in battles, except for one which I'll enumerate to you and read for you, but it's uh, it was the ramifications of having conquered, of occupying, and the resulting population interface that happened between the French and the Ottoman Egyptians. Without further ado, let's continue on to the original embarkment, or rather, the disembarkment of French forces in Alexandria. Immediately, I think one of the things that stuck out in the memoirs of Napoleon was just how hot and arid the climate had changed. Most people don't know that since classical antiquity, much of the North African coast had become a desert-like arid um, environment which is characterized of what it is today. Uh, many people don't know, for instance, that Carthage and the whole North African plain was a major source of agricultural goods and agricultural production. Um, it, it used to have actually pretty fertile land, but because of how the climate changed, etc., um, over time, those North African regions became increasingly arid and obviously... Uh, they became depopulated and not as rich as they once were in classical antiquity. To remember the Renaissance and to remember the Enlightenment, or quote-unquote Enlightenment, um, there was an obsession with the classical histories, as in, in addition to the, the rational thinkers of their time, or quote-unquote rational thinkers, Voltaire and so on and so um, It seems... On a side note, it's funny how man always reaches back to this one period in history to reinvigorate themselves, the classical point of life, where men were men, and the classical taste. I, I really have to read to you this, um, this quote just to explain to you why it is that every generation that chooses to reinforce the classical impetus or spirit of their, of that age into their own, always seems so much more invigorated and powerful. Just stand by for one second. Let me find this Nietzsche quote I think you would appreciate. Ah, here we go. Stand by. So, classical taste. This means will to simplification, strengthening, to visible happiness, to the terrible, the courage of psychological nakedness. Simplification is a consequence of the will to strengthening, allowing happiness to become visible. Also, nakedness, a consequence of the will to be terrible. To fight upward out of that chaos to this form requires a compulsion. One must be faced with the choice of perishing or prevailing. A dominating race can grow up only out of a terrible and violent beginning. Now think to yourself the parallel between us and them, between Napoleon and the classical antiquity. They're going into the unknown, or rather, they're remotely known. And they go into, you know, Egypt vastly overextended against great odds, against an enemy who has been fearsome for centuries, who is also harried at sea and has no true communications with the homeland, France, due to the British Navy, which had a, you know, was bar none, the most superior uh, maritime force of that century. And so we think to ourselves, okay, this is, this is 
why men go back into that time. Intrepidity and boldness of action is the very thing that determines greatness. And it is only in this time of the late Roman Republic and the early Principate that men go back and consult the likes of Plutarch and Cassius Dio and all the rest of them. Even the Stoics. Even the nerds like Cicero. Who, by the way, I think we should give treatment to all the journalists, which uh, when Cicero was assassinated in a pogrom by Mark Antony and Augustus Caesar, his hands and his tongue were separated from his body and nailed to the Senate doors. Now, that's what I call journalist justice. I love that. I think we should do that at some point, some future time where that's legal, of course. In any case... um, Getting back here, they arrive in the bay. Their heads, uh, think about the heavy uniform, the cloth uniform from uh, continental Europe, where the air, especially in the 1800s, it was so much colder, and so they had so many more layers. Even in the summer, it was a lot more temperate. And so they arrived there completely unprepared. It gives you a lot of Barbarossa unpreparedness in reverse. So, obviously, the Wehrmacht was unprepared for a winter campaign, um, the Napoleonic armies, the Army of the Orient, was unprepared for a summer campaign. And they had uh, the idea or the premise in their mind to only wage a six-month campaign in Egypt to acquire the goals of their campaign and disembark. So obviously there is a certain circumstance here, um, a certain parallel of unpreparedness is preparedness to fail, correct? So, without further ado, they arrive, they take the castle of Al-Bukir, and they take Alexandria without much fuss. Obviously, they take pot shots from the peasants, etc., and that's not really a big deal. Um, And, you know, the men, they arrive on the shore without water, their canteens are empty, and they, they... part of the the almost overwhelming onslaught of French forces is is added with emphasis because of the fact that they're so desperate to just drink some drinkable water. There were men bent over on puddles in the streets of urine drinking from the the their dirt ground because they were so um, parched from dehydration. So I say again, always be prepared. Not just a military action, but in the actions of your life. You always have to presage things before they happen and think about, okay, what happens if this plan goes wrong? What what are some added layers of fat, so to speak, of energy of, of to sustain more, more power into this mission that I have? Clearly, obviously, there are probably... I don't know. They they were they were bargaining on the idea that Egypt was this cosmopolitan city of high technological and cultural influence that it was of the Ptolemaic era. It was not the case. And Napoleon and a number of other classicists that he brought with him were extremely disappointed. I mean, it went from a city with straight streets and a hippodrome and, you know, beautiful you know the the pharaohs of Alexandria and everything to almost like basically what you see Baghdad today a big of a, a, a lot of hovels slapped together in disgusting 
disgusting people with disgusting streets and uh, it's foul and and on top of everything else the the indomitable heat the oppressive sun and so this is what they're faced with right almost as if dreams were ripped away from their minds and their hearts and yet they choose to persevere because at the end of the day the strategic imperative is still the same controlling egypt is the means to control india and to interdict british trade in the far east so they continue on they take alexandria and here we arrive at the action which leads up to the battle of the pyramids so you have to imagine this this core of thirty thousand men were split up after alexandria one followed the coast and the nile down south towards cairo Cairo is the administrative and, I guess, imperial center and cultural center of the Islamic Egypt. So the Fatimids, it's not just... So Alexandria was the capital of all these things back in remote antiquity, but this capital changed after the Arab invasions of the 700s to Cairo. Cairo is the place where there are many like Sufi mystics and scholars. Um, the Fatimid dynasty established itself with a powerful hegemony there. Um, it is... I mean, it's a beautiful city even today. I think of all the places I want to go visit, Egypt is certainly one of those places that ranks high on your list. And anyway, without further ado, so they go and they, they, they cross... And you have to imagine what it must have been like to be a, a French soldier, you know, traversing the swamps of the Nile, which is thick with mud, and they go and they see hippopotami for the first time, and alligators, uh, things straight from the dinosaur era, to juxtaposed against, you know, in the skyline, pyramids, and a, a, a strong humidity where there's a, a, a stark contrast between the lush green valley of the Nile and the immediate dunes of the Sahara. But there is the second um, fork that went across the desert as a shortcut. Well, it was supposed to be a three-day forced march across the desert um, with the emphasis on cutting off Malmaluk reinforcements so as to de- to throw the enemy off kilter to keep them on their feet and keep the tempo, operational tempo, quickly. However, as we said before, um, men were unprepared. There was not enough water. There was not enough preparation. Their their clothes were completely unsuited for desert warfare and for desert climbs. Um, You know, their big leather caresses and top hats and so the top hat was also a leather thing and they had leather straps which kept their necks straight um, and you know the heavy metal muskets and stuff and, and and so many people suffer from dehydration to the point that men went temporarily blind from ophthalmia I think that's what how you pronounce it I pronounce you know you have to look this up but it's a dehydration induced uh, blindness and so this little traverse led by Napoleon himself of course and his indomitable will crossed the desert in three days, and they lost roughly some something crazy, some absurd figure of 2,000 men in the desert. Never again did this happen. And um, I don't think they were able to replicate the same Bedouin ranger uh, situation that they usually did. Now, continuing on, these two branches are unable to successfully corner off or pinch off the 
Mamluk contingent that had retreated and retrograded towards the Cairo operational area for um, reinforcements and to regroup and reattack. And so they arrived there, and here we arrive at the place of the Battle of the Pyramids. Here, the Imperial Ottoman Empire has actually... Uh, a, so, it's not just the Mamluks, right? It's There are a contingent of janissaries from the Ottoman Empire who are Turks, and obviously this is almost like a feudal arrangement where there are nominally Ottoman representatives that are local to the location um, and have some military presence, but the vast majority of them are just Mamluks themselves. And so here we arrive next to the Pyramids of Giza, which historically speaking, the the uh, soyjack uh, neckbeard things like, well actually, the battle happened, and it was only fi- faintly visible in, in the distance, oh my god I hate people like that the truth is, it's the Battle of the Pyramids, okay and so before battle commences uh, Napoleon gives his speech to the troops and he talks like this citizens we sit here 40 centuries looking on to you for glory or something like that but it is something truly beautiful think about all the history that went from then till now all the armies that have ga- been gazed upon by the pyramids and now they are part of history itself and so before battle commences here is the uh, general uh, quality of the French army so they're extremely infantry heavy the horses either died in the trans-Mediterranean voyage, um, and also you have to remember that at Alexandria, once they took Alexandria, the the fleet at anchor in uh, Al Akbar, I forgot what it was called, Bay was sunk by Horatio Nelson at anchor. And so they were completely severed from the homeland for reinforcements and for help with, uh, you know, logistics, including horses. And so they were only able to mount a limited, I think it was a battalion-sized element of dragoons, who were used later as a screening force or scouting force only, and so they weren't able to be used, they were too valuable, you see, uh, to be used in a setting with, uh, you know, in a military setting with high-intensity casualties, etc. And so they sit there, and they the battle commences, okay? And some of the, the fleet, the French fleet, that had been anchored off the bay escaped into the Nile and were aiding the French in a, in a battle down the Nile because the Nile is a massive and wide and deep ravine. So big, like, ships with at least relatively medium drafts are able to traverse into it. And so they come across, however, the Ottoman galleys and galleasses, which are this massive galley. And they create a battle in the Nile itself, a naval battle, while in parallel there is a French detachment attacking a massive horde of beautifully dressed Mamluks and their rabble who aid them as well. And so this is called the Battle of the Pyramids, and I think that the best way to articulate exactly how things transpired is to read from uh, the campaigns of Napoleon 
by this great guy called uh, David Chandler. It, it doesn't even just go into the one campaign in denial, but all of his campaigns from a military perspective, I highly recommend it, especially if you're in the military interest. Um, one of the ways people don't know about this, even if you're not in the military, but you want a military education, most don't know that the majority of your education could be had through history books and military history. Read Barbarossa and read, like, you know, the, the Second World War, read the battle schematics and basic stuff like that because it's very easy actually to learn uh, basic tactics and infantry tactics and stuff like that. It do, it's not really that hard. What is hard, however, is understanding how to piece together from experience um, you know, operational, strategic, and even leadership um, predicaments people have had in the past and how people have overcome that. And that's why people continue to read about Napoleon is because not only is he an exceptional figure historically, he is an exceptional military leader. And he shows us what what to do and what not to do and even acknowledges his shortcomings that have happened. So without further ado, I will talk about the Battle of the Pyramids. Now, stand by, Legionaries. Here we go, one second. Stop, stop, Ah, here we go. And it has these great maps, by the way, like perfectly uh, written and drawn maps. Now, without further ado, so here we start. At 2 in the morning of July 21st, the French army broke camp and marched in the village of Mbaba. The 12 hours later, there was within sight of their objective. An hour's rest was granted, and then the men took up their paddle positions. A mile to the south stood the series ranks of Murad's 6,000 Mamluks and 15,000 Fellahin. And by the way, the numbers are greatly exaggerated uh, to some extent, uh, but the historical reality might be that the enemy had 40,000 men just at this conflict alone. And so without further ado, cavalry on the left and foot on the right, the latter ranged around the walls and houses of Mbaba, closed by the Nile. Over the river stood Ibrahim's horde, relegated to the role of the dim but majestic outlines of the pyramids shimmering in the haze. Bonaparte exhorted his troops to remain steady and keep their ranks closed up before the inevitable onslaught of the Mameluk cavalry. Forward! Remember that it is monuments yonder 40 centuries look down upon you. He quickly formed his divisions into an oblique line of squares and launched them forward. On this occasion, the squares would be better described as rectangles. For to increase the firepower of the exposed sides, each division placed a complete demi-brigade in its front and rear and used the third regiment to form the shorter flanks. In all, the French numbered 25,000 men and probably enjoyed a considerable numerical advantage over their opponents, but Bonaparte had learned earlier in the month how elusive his enemy could be, and a real victory was essential. On the French right, toward the desert, was the square of Dessa, closely supported to the left by Rainier. Rainier. All these Frenchoid names always trip me up. Anyway, here we go back. Dessa also, had a, also sent a detachment of cavalry and grenadiers to occupy a large village formed the extreme right of the French left, the French line. Uh, just a short note here: the grenadiers, in a Napoleonic sense, were used. First of all, they were formed as a regiment of massive and strong men who were armed. In addition to their muskets, 
they're armed with grena- grenades, like the first short fuse grenades. Um, but they were also used where it's almost like the first cohort of a legion. The double reinforced and strong men, the strongest and best men, were the grenadiers. And so this is where he made sure there was a pin in the line to make sure that that position, Napoleon deployed him in a position to make sure that they would hold. Continuing on. Vialembon were placed on the line, the Nile flank, opposite Imbaba, and in central reserve stood the division of Duga, Dugua, excuse me, Bonaparte and his staff taking shelter within his square. At 3.30, the Mamluks charged with a ferocious yell against the French right, and almost took Dessau and Renier unawares, but the divisional squares closed up just in time, and the torrent of horsemen divided into three columns which poured around and between the fire... F- fire-fringed rectangles before plunging onto the rear. Here they came under the fire of a howitzer sighted inside Duga's Square and in a very short time the cloud of horsemen swung around and swept back toward the village on Desa's flank. The small garrison climbed onto the flat roofs of the houses and held the Mameluk horde at bay until Desa could afford to send help from his square. As Bonaparte had, her- had hoped the animal's f- enemy's formidable mounted arm had thus been distracted from the critical river flank, where, in the meantime, Vial and Bon, covered by the guns of the French flotilla firing from the Nile, were prepared to storm the fortifications of Imbaba. The troops unexpectedly came under heavy fire from the large Egyptian cannon hidden in the village, but fortunately for the French, these pieces were mounted on fixed carriages and could not be traversed. Bon's division soon recovered some its elan, Elan, again, is its spirit, its enthusiasm, its uh, manly, virile spirit of uh, martial quality, right? Uh, I'm reading again. And opened out into a number of columns of assault, supported by three small squares commanded by General Rampon. Within minutes, Bond's army, excuse me, Bond's men stormed their way into the village, and the garrison of 2,000 Mamelukes tried to swarm away up the Nile, Marmont rushed the demi brigade forward to seize a defile in rear of the village. A defile, by the way, is a depression. So it's like a finger. Well, excuse me. It's the. It's a. You know, there's a hill. Fingers are the ridges, and a defile is like the indentation. Except a defile is like a ditch. So continuing on. Their retreat cut off. The Mamluks turned in desperation for the Nile and attempted to swim over to join Ibrahim's watching multitude. At least 1,000 were drowned and six more, 600 more were shot down. By 4.30 p.m., the battle was over. Murad Bey and his 3,000 surviving cavalry fleeing towards Giza and Middle Egypt. Bonaparte had at last gained his decisive victory. For a nominal loss of 29 killed and perhaps 260 wounded, his army had accounted for 2,000 Mamluks and several thousand more Fellahin. Bonaparte was greatly assisted by the medieval tactics of his opponents. The Mamluks, for all their great individual courage, only understood three evolutions, to form, to charge, and, if fortune did not favor their attack, to flee. Such elementary tactics had little chance of success against the firepower and discipline of the French squares. The troops reached reaped a rich reward pillaging the corpses of the Mamluks, who invariably carried 
all their worldly wealth with them into battle, and for several weeks the most popular sport in the army was fishing for corpses with bait, bent bayonets, a profitable pastime invented by a private soldier of the 32nd. Now, there are a number of different things that I think are good takeaways from this battle, but you have to remember that the armies of the Napoleonic era weren't all that different from the early modern armies of the 1600s. And especially when masses were in, in training and all that kind of stuff, it really wasn't any that different. Which should emphasize to you the value and the force-multiplying value of discipline. Discipline is the thing that makes armies, but it also makes men. It's not just in military formations that you can do that, but it's also, more importantly, the thing in life, which you can persevere and know how to do your job, even under stress, under severe duress, under attack from, you know, these massive and swift horsemen. And they were good. They were good swordsmen. It's not like they weren't, they were bad, uh, warriors, per se. That is the emphasis, is that, there, you know, people, you know, in the 1900s, for instance, when there was machine guns and rifle uh, munitions and and uh, artillery and all this kind of good stuff that completely outclassed any kind of armament that had happened from before. Of course, that's a, a different story. But these men weren't that far removed from their adversary, technologically speaking. The difference was soldiery. The difference was discipline. The difference was to know not just your job and not what to do in a given command or location or situation and obviously the most important thing that people don't know is group cohesion so it's not just about knowing your job but it's also doing it in unison every day day in day out drilling and um, understanding your friends together and how to get things done together and how people work mentally and and all this kind of stuff that is called group cohesion it's battle battle formation cohesion and so i think as especially as military leaders are listening to this i think it's important that you emphasize there's not enough drill and i don't mean like closed order drill that you see on the parade grounds but i mean in life in general there's not enough pt there's not enough emphasis on the ditties of infantry attacks or whatever MOS that you were in, there's not enough emphasis on the job that you have. You can never have enough discipline. And remember, Von Schnell's guide, you have to keep your men busy all the time. Well, one of the most important things about soldiery that people don't get is that it's easy to understand conceptually. It is easy to get. Obviously, it's important to expose yourself, so there is still a valuable entity to exposing yourself to the experience and to understanding conceptually what a tactic comprises of but the essence of soldiery is repetition practice practice and drill and repetition again and continuing on even when you're tired and you're ready to drop so that is the emphasis of close order drill why it is so useful etc and we saw that's what it carried the day here with the infantry squares. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen what an infantry square is. It's literally a square of men who go from a block or a single line detachment or regimental uh, formation who expand in depth. And basically the, the company or regimental headquarters and their men 
are in the center of that square, you should watch this movie. It's the 1970s movie Waterloo. I absolutely recommend it. Continuing on. Now, this is the point where there's a huge naval engagement and the French flotilla were actually wavering. And at a certain point, they were about to be sunk by the Ottoman galaxies. And at this critical juncture, because the the land battle had gone so well, uh, Napoleon was able to employ his artillery on the banks of the Nile and drive back the Ottoman flagship. In fact, causing a detonation of its powder reserve and causing flight uh, from the sailors therein to go back down the Nile and retreat, just like their territorial Mamluk brethren here. And so this sets the precedent for the rest of the occupation. I will not go into detail about the the future battles because they're smaller or or less important, Um, but I want to talk about the occupational situation, the uh, counterinsurgency cues that the French took. And so after this battle of the pyramids... Napoleon takes all of proper Egypt, and he swings up across Giza and into Syria as well. Um, And meanwhile, he's talking to the Ottoman uh, sultan, trying to get some kind of diplomatic understanding going on, so that way they they can retreat with some face, but they can't. doesn't matter. But in the meantime, however, there are a a number of, of cultural and governmental... How do you say... Uh actions that Napoleon takes. For instance, he emphasizes that every citizen has to wear the revolutionary cockade. The cockade looks like a flower, looks like a roundel. It's the red on the outside, the white on the middle ring, and then on the center it's the blue. And this cockade was to show every citizen's individual loyalty to the French ideal. And there, there Napoleon set up the... Uh, the Islamic Republic of Egypt, where he gathered together the sheikhs and the clerics, who were the clerics were extremely important uh, for political issues and for controlling the vast clientage system that there was, and to exude some power over that, um, and even tried to make some propaganda claims, claiming that Napoleon himself was a great um, Muslim from a a small M sense, not a big M sense, because he was also a deist. So the deists, by the way, are an enlightenment innovation that the divine is one thing, right? It's a Masonic concept of God, and that there is one God, and that's it. There's one divine aspect, and that... So, obviously, this came in... How do you say a- antagonism with the majority of Western Christendom at that time, which uh, also believed that Jesus himself was partly God and all this kind of stuff. I'm not going to get into the theology of it, but he tried to emphasize or try to play off that he was a Muslim himself, which obviously fell flat. Um, but on top of that, there are a, a number of interesting things that he did, but some bad and some good. So let's list the bad things that happened, right? The bad things is that he demanded the tricolor, the flag, be flown from minarets of mosques. And this was a deep affront, I mean, not just to Islam itself, because religion, you know, if you believe in a religion truly, it, it's above everything. It's not below anything. It's it's spiritual. It's, you know, that's 
you can't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so he insisted on that, and and that was a, a a certain impetus towards the jihad that would happen. That was would be called by the caliph, who at that time was the Sultan Selim the Third, um, the Ottoman Sultan, by the way. And on top of that, the cockades, the emphasized cockades of every single citizen was also deeply um, grinding down, okay? Because, like, think about it. Uh, the Arabs are a very warrior-like culture, right? They, you know, having a foreign army not only conquer you and have dalliances with your women and they become Europeanized and whore themselves out to the French army, to French officers, etc. But now you're expected, not only are you expected to cuck yourself, but you're expected to show a, a sign on your body that you are yourself dominated by, you know, a foreigner. And so this greatly agitates the local populace. And the general discontent or dis- disdain of contempt, I would say, um, also did nothing to help co-opt the vastly larger local population. And so throughout the two years that the Napoleonic army was there, there were constant Bedouin raids, um, you know, there was constant uh, up uprisings and all this stuff to the point where even in Cairo at one point and all, all these old Midi- uh, Middle Eastern cities, or I think it was actually Alexandria, I'm sorry, Alexandria uh, that they were all cordoned off internally by sections, right? And uh, there was this weird thing at night. They would they would lock the sections between quarters of the city, um, and you can see this in modern day in Jerusalem, actually. And this is just kind of like to keep the neighborhood safe from burglary, from theft, from you know bad things that go on at night. Um, and so, what they did is they uprose and they they trapped certain French soldiers and they would shoot them in the streets and then disappear and uh, constant you know basically catching Napoleon's uh, Napoleon's men unawares when they're trying to get food or buy and barter stuff or go out and experience the local women so to speak or this or that which is why by the way for those of you who don't know you should always carry your weapons you should always carry these things with you because at the end of the day um, many of these attacks were actually waiting for men who were going on R&R without any any guns, without any protection that's when they were most uh, vulnerable and you know there was plagues and all this kind of good stuff but the good stuff that Napoleon did that actually did work was a system of reprisals and so for instance uh, let's say a village a village was responsible or was the site of a location which killed a, a French soldier or something, right? Well, uh, a dignitary would go to that village and that village headsman or leader would be responsible for a fine or something like that or give them information on who did it. And if it wasn't like good enough or if you could tell that they were arming the rebels or if they actively resisted the magistrate from coming and they making their demands, uh, what the army would do, the French army would do, they would go to this village, and first of all, they would kill everyone that would resist, and then they would burn, in a reprisal, the whole village, right? Now, people think that this is a crime, or whatever kind of liberal bullshit that they come up with, but there's a utility to it, because what it does is um, 
collective punishment, what it does, it has two effects. Obviously, people are like, well, it makes you resented. Well, yeah, it doesn't matter, but at the end of the day, in the future, you know that whatever your buddy does affects you, and so there is a certain level of discipline you will enact on each other, and if you're able to win over the, the majority of a populace of that village by inducement, by bribery, by whatever, or just by simple loyalty or something like that, then what they'll do is exude pressure upon their peers to act in unition. So instead of having a bunch of individuals, you make one unit. Um, these reprisals actually tended to work a lot better. And they would work a lot better, especially in Algeria and the later conquests of the 1830s. But that's for another time. Continuing on, uh, you know, those are some major... So we've already enumerated why we study military history before, but if America had studied history, if it had an actual competent military case, that's the thing that people don't get about the American military. The American military isn't actually good. It just has really good logistics and an overwhelming supply of supplies and technology, and that's that's how they win, right? That's how they won World War II. It's not because they're really good. I mean, the U.S. Army, for instance, their battle record was pretty fucking mediocre, honestly. And the only successful... I mean, the Marine Corps, the same thing, was just used as a sledgehammer just to clear out soldiers of the, the Japanese who were also their technological inferiors and stuff, but the way that they won was simply outproducing them in ships and munitions and logistics and the capability of actually having uh, these units acting cohesion. So... That's the issue, right? The reason why we lost, for instance, Operation Enduring Freedom in Iraq and Afghanistan is because we weren't able to uh, to navigate the sensibilities of the locals. We made the same mistakes as Napoleon made. We liberalized the women. We made us ourselves resented in Afghanistan, and especially in I mean, especially Iraq. We killed people uh, almost arbitrarily, and. Um, that the death of <laughs> I, oh and, and that's another thing too is that uh, so we would kill by accident or collateral damage three million people all over the Middle East and in recompense you know you know what we gave the family of the people of deceased uh, the equivalent of one year of income that's it so it's like you know I, I accidentally kill your son your your progeny the the person that's going to you know, carry on your family name, your honor, you know, your livelihood when you're an adult, because in those countries, they the the young take care of the old. I, I'll give you a year. It's almost a slap in the face. It's, it's disgusting. And so, if you read this book, uh, Surge, by Peter Mansour, there are a lot of misconceptions that we could do away with if we just read the military history of past campaigns, of how to handle and purposefully co-opt um, a local populace. The American issue is that there's not enough stick. There's not enough emphasis. We're too individualistic. We're so brain-fucked to the idea that, about individualism that we're not able to understand that collective action is a superior form of uh, social organization and that making collective punishment is one of those kind of things that reprisals are required. Um, obviously that didn't work out, and that's part of the reason why we lost uh, GWAT, right? 
and considered, oh, by the way, GWAT stands for Global War on Terrorism. Now, continuing on, um, there are some, this, this is why you study campaigns, okay? Let's leave it at that. But moving on, so some positive military takeaways that I wanted to take away from this campaign in Egypt. And in the future, if you want me to, I'll go into depth on some of these battles and some interest stuff. But I kind of want to just take away the big picture. And the big picture is discipline trumps bravada. Bravura, I mean, I'm sorry. And that means, like, discipline trumps courage. And there's a reason why, you know, you read stories like Zulu and, and this and that, that discipline drills out of your head uh, the primordial fight-or-flight response and tells you to do this no matter what, even when you're under, you know, severe pain or stress or whatever. So, discipline. Discipline is a major factor in success. So, doing a population needs carrot and stick. As I said before, um, you know, don't do things that unnecessarily cause them to resent you, lay your yoke on them lightly, and induce them, which means you you want to seduce them, you want to love them, and uh, one of the things that Napoleon did, which won him some temporary favor with the locals, was throwing massive festivals, um, which honored the clerics and the uh, the prophet and Muhammad, and um, he was very, very sensitive, as much as he could be for his time, of the local uh, religious traditions uh, and etc, etc. Uh, three, daring and aggression are huge force multipliers. So, as you saw, uh, Napoleon was vastly outnumbered, but he was locally the superior man. So, at the Battle of the Pyramids, um, if you stacked up all of Napoleon's forces and all of the Ottoman forces, Mameluke forces, together, there's a massive disparity. Napoleon was vastly outnumbered. But what Napoleon did was tactically and operationally put all of his forces at conflict sites. So, for instance, when he wanted to meet a, a secure uh, a strategic objective, what he did is he quickly outpaced and outmaneuvered the enemy, so that way the enemy couldn't group together all his forces to defend a position or riposte. What he did is quickly, like a lightning march, which is why he went across that uh, that desert for three days, uh, get to a location and cause a battle. And that battle, because he got there so quick and the enemy wasn't able to get so quick, that the, many, the enemy on hand only had a fraction of their forces that they could muster. And so what ends up happening is that Napoleon defeats his enemy in detail. That's what it means. Defeating your enemy in detail. Right? So, locally speaking, at the Battle of Pyramids, it sounded like he had a rough parity with uh, Ottoman forces. This is what you need to do. You need to realize that you don't. it doesn't matter if you're outnumbered. What matters is that you have the aggression and the quickness of pace and dynamism to take little bites of steak at one time before the Colossus can react. Okay, now, going on further. So, uh, as I said before, the needless affront to local traditions is something you have to be very, very, very sensitive if you want to dominate a people. Alexander the Great was great at this because when he went into the Persian Empire, um, he honored the local 
nobles, and he incorporated them um, in the liberal terminology. It was inclusive. But seriously, though, he, he did include a, a number of major Persian commanders and generals and governors um, and made him part made them part of the Macedonian dynasty, or rather, kingdom. Um, obviously, this caused a lot of resentment to the Greeks, but what happened is that during his lifetime, he consolidated uh, his conquest pretty quickly. That's something Napoleon di- didn't really do, um, and a lot of it had to do with, obviously, their logistics being overstretched, so they were overtaxing the population unnecessarily. And here's another thing, which I know you probably don't think has military relevance, but it does. Women. So think about it. All these men are gone from France. And whether you agree with it or not, I don't care. Okay, the reality is man wants to fuck. Okay? And when they got there, obviously the cases for rape and for a number of under other unfortunate circumstances happened. Also, the market for prostitution in a country that looks down strongly on prostitutes um, was was it flourished and it flourished in places that was not tasteful. So in Europe, uh, there was like you know red light districts where you could see women out and about that you could buy or whatever. And in the Middle East, the way prostitution worked is that you spoke to a merchant. And the merchant would come out with literally, uh, you know, a woman on a donkey or a camel walk to you. So that way it was kind of discreet. Um, And the flagrant abuse or like in your face about prostitution really affronted many of the upstanding and normal Egyptians, even middle class ones. And so this caused a lot of discontent, a lot of humiliation unnecessarily. And this is another thing I think is important people to understand for military campaigns. Um, the French were actually very innovative of this idea, but in the Indochina Wars and the wars of colonialization, um, they actually incorporated or made institutional part of the army uh, a prostitution logistical company. I'm not even I'm not even joking you. Like this is not a joke. I know this sounds really weird. But if you read, for instance, uh, Street Without Joy, a lot of these women, either local or from France, would sell their services to uh, French soldiers, and they would make a living that way. And oftentimes, when you know their convoys were under attack or whatever, they would fight too. Um, and there was actually this interesting study, academic study, that noticed that the in places where there were French soldiers with this specific commodity, let's say, or capability, um, there was significant less uh, instances of rape. And coincidentally, there were significant less inter- instances, excuse me, instances of rebellion. Right? So Indochina, those cities that were, the towns and hamlets that were treated well, that weren't molested, that were, you know, their property rights were respected, they were either neutral or actually pretty supportive of the French. And in places where that this that that service wasn't present, well guess what? There was a lot more there was a lot more fighting. There was a lot more rebellion. And so for me, I think that a lot of military leaders 
I, I think that I don't like prostitution. I don't think it's a good idea. I, I think it's kind of callow. But you can't think like that if you're a military commander. At the end of the day, it will happen. And so what you have to do is provide for circumstances which don't affect your mission capacity. But I think that's it for now. And I wanted to continue on in Napoleon's campaigns. And I think one of the most interesting things that we can learn is these small tidbits that we learn, not of the tactics, but the people that come around it. And I highly recommend you read, by the way, uh, the campaigns of Napoleon, again, by this individual named David Chandler. Uh, is probably one of the preeminent military histories out there of Napoleon. Um, in addition to that, I think that as I continue, and part of the reason why I have these transmissions and why I have this program, is because you don't have to be a soldier or have military experience, etc., to be a militarily-minded man, to make yourself useful as a citizen soldier, to teach yourself. Because a lot of the education that is expected of military officers and military soldiers, etc., um, are things that the public can access. All I'm here to do is procure you those, how do you say, resources together in a way that actually has military sense. Don't focus too much on nerding out about guns and stuff. War, just like politics, its essence is the human being. And human beings haven't changed since forever. So read these campaigns, read these experiences, read memoirs, read leadership, read about Napoleon himself, read Jomini. That's why we learn history in the military, because it is by leveraging the experiences of the past into modern problems to figure out human the human conditions of our time. That makes you an effective military commander. And one of the few modern American commanders that are any good, uh, General Petraeus, he was one of those avid and voracious readers of history, especially Napoleon, and I highly recommend, especially if you're in the military, to be a proselytizer of military history, philosophy, and other experiences which will help uh, your fellow man, your fellow soldier, improve their quality. But that's it for now. This is Lance's Legion. This is General Lance, signing off. <laughs>